Hello, that name of the podcast is Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. Well, you've probably seen it on the map, but maybe you haven't paid all that much attention to it. We're talking about that odd notch in Connecticut's otherwise straight-as-an-arrow northern border. There's a small piece that juts down from Massachusetts and sticks into Connecticut, but it is Massachusetts territory. And it turns out there is quite a story behind its history. It's called the Southwick Jog, at least by the residents of Southwick, Massachusetts, who live there. Patricia Pat Odiorn is the treasurer of the Southwick, Massachusetts Historical Society. And yes, she lives in the Southwick Jog. She's very knowledgeable and has a great sense of humor. And she takes living in Massachusetts, south of the border and surrounded each day by Connecticut on three sides, in stride. Now, the odd notch in Connecticut's northern border. The story behind the Southwick Jog spans 160 years. Well, we'll get to all that in a moment, but to start out, let's introduce Pat Odiorn. She's the treasurer of the Southwick, Massachusetts Historical Society, and she lives in the tiny one-square-mile piece of land that juts down into Connecticut from Massachusetts along the northern border of Connecticut. It's kind of like a peninsula. How does it feel getting up in the morning and realizing you're surrounded on three sides by Connecticut? Is that something that ever enters your mind? <laughs> well, only in a historic sense. No, no. It, it's interesting to look across and, and see another state across the, across the water. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm used to it. Well, Pat has lived there for nearly 50 years, since 1975, and Turns out she's gotten to know the history about this odd-shaped piece of land during that time. She goes all the way back to 1642, and at that point, the United States didn't even exist. The state of Massachusetts was the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Connecticut didn't exist. There were just settlements of new Europeans, but they were increasing in numbers. They were setting up their homesteads and their farms and communities. And So the Massachusetts Bay Colony approached the King of England and had a request for a formal charter so they could establish their legal boundaries. Well, the king obliged, and it was all supposed to be a very simple, straightforward exercise. Surveyors would start in Boston at the Charles River. They'd mark off three miles south of the southernmost curve in the river, and from there, just draw a straight line. It was supposed to go to the Pacific Ocean. They had it all the way across the country, of course, which they even didn't know how big it was, you know, having never seen the West Coast. That's the way the grant read. So they had to figure out what their jurisdiction was. Now, as I understand the story, Massachusetts then hired, after they got this uh, charter from, uh, from the British, they hired these gentlemen, Nathaniel Woodward and Solomon Safry, who uh, appeared to be fine gentlemen, but were not necessarily the best surveyors. That's true. <laughs> well, they decided that since the trip was going to be through a howling wilderness, that they would just take ship in Boston and go around Cape Cod and come up the Connecticut River and take their readings. And it came out that it was seven miles too far south. Well, what seven miles amongst friends, right? Turns out quite a bit, and it kicked off a century and a half haggle over the border. What the surveyors should have done was start three miles south of the Charles River Bend, as they did, 
But then they should have kept going in a straight line from point to point. That's what surveyors do. Instead, they got on that boat in Boston Harbor, sailed around Cape Cod, came up Long Island Sound, up the Connecticut River, and guess what? They missed the point that they were aiming for. So where did they pick up that line once they got up the Connecticut River? They pegged it at Windsor, Connecticut, which is you know, seven miles south of, of us on the Connecticut River. So anyway, that was Massachusetts deciding that's what they were going to go with. Well, Connecticut wasn't having it. They hired their own surveyors, and lo and behold, they spotted the error right away. But no steps were taken to rectify the problem until 1713, and then it became even a little stickier. Three Connecticut towns that you don't necessarily hear about every day, Woodstock, Enfield, and Suffield, were combined with Westfield in Massachusetts to create a bit of a border compromise. The commissioners from Connecticut and Massachusetts got together, and they decided that they were going to do the straight line. And so Woodstock, Enfield, Suffield, and Westfield would stay in Massachusetts, even though three of those were south of the line, that they were going to stay under the jurisdiction of Massachusetts. Connecticut wanted to get some compensation for losing all that land. So Massachusetts gave them some land in Massachusetts farther west. Connecticut said, "Mm, we don't want to have a parcel of land that's not connected with us. You know, it would be just hanging out there. So they sold it and they used the money to support what's now Yale University. Yale was established in 1701, and here it is, 1713, and they gave the money to Yale to help them establish themselves. So everything settled, right? Well, not so fast. Pat picks up the story now in 1749. Well, fast forward. The people who were living in Enfield and Woodstock, Suffield, decided that they didn't want to live in Massachusetts anymore. The land itself was in Connecticut. So they petitioned the General Assembly that they would like to become part of Connecticut instead of Massachusetts. And Connecticut said, of course, we would want to have you. So those towns became part of Connecticut. So here we are with Woodstock, Enfield, Suffield, all squared away. Well, what was all squared away was just the town south of the border in Connecticut, What was not squared away was the town of Westfield, Massachusetts. That was the fourth town in that 1713 border compromise deal. Westfield owned a huge amount of land on the Massachusetts side of the border, as well as a two-square-mile piece of land that jutted south of the border into Connecticut. Well, things moved very slowly in those days, and it would be another 20 years before the next chapter happened. So it was 1770 now, and the residents in the southern portion of Westfield decided they wanted to form their own town and break away from Westfield. They were going to call their new town Southwick. Well, they got the permission to break off, and now they owned land on both sides of the border, including that two-square-mile piece that jutted into Connecticut. Well, it turns out there was this particularly prominent family that lived in the two-square-mile piece of Southwick, They knew the history of how Woodstock, Enfield, and Suffield had petitioned to become part of Connecticut, and they figured, why not us too? Some of the residents of the south part 
most of them surnamed Moore, decided, well, you know, Connecticut's a better deal than we're getting with Massachusetts. So let's just become part of Connecticut. So they did what the other towns had done, asking to be part of Connecticut. And Connecticut said, sure, why not? They became part of Connecticut. So finally, this piece of land was part of Connecticut. End of the story, right? Not by a long shot. Because as you already know, that notch that juts into Connecticut today belongs to Massachusetts today. So how to get back there? Well, first, while Connecticut owned it, the two square miles was roughly cut in half. One square mile belonging to Suffield, Connecticut, that was the eastern half, and the other square mile on the west belonging to Granby, Connecticut. The border between them was a beautiful body of water known as Congamond Lakes. Now, everybody in Connecticut seemed pretty happy with this arrangement, and nothing was done because the Revolutionary War was underway and there was simply more to do and more important priorities. But Massachusetts was not satisfied, and in 1804 they revisited everything and decided they wanted the land back. And the reason that Massachusetts fought so hard to keep that peace is because of the Congamon Lakes. Now, that's a point I wanted to follow up with a, with a question. I mean, people go to war over the natural resources in a, in a land. Uh, this piece of land, I mean, Congamon Lake was a big deal because uh, it was used for ice, right? It was used for ice. It also had an outlet called Great Brook. There was a gunpowder mill. There was a fulling mill. There was a flour mill. And they used the water from the Congamon Lake to flow into the Great Brook. And they needed control of that water so that they could run their mill. So in 1804, it was back to the negotiating table, and yet another agreement was reached. This time, though, it is the end of the story as we know it today. The deal was that all the land east of Congamond Lakes under the control of Suffield, Connecticut, would stay with Suffield, and the one square mile of land in the west in Granby would revert back to Southwick, Massachusetts. And that formed the so-called Southwick Jog, a piece of Southwick that to this very day juts down into Connecticut. Now, incidentally, Connecticut residents don't call it the Southwick Jog. They refer to it as the Southwick Notch, Sort of like the difference between soda and pop or sub sandwich or hoagie. Now, you may recall it was the Moore family that populated the majority of the Southwick Jog, and they had built a house way back in the 1700s, which is today owned by the Southwick Historical Society. What we have in our Southwick Historical Society is a building that was in two colonies. Massachusetts Bay and Connecticut Colony, two states, Massachusetts and Connecticut, three counties, Hartford, Hampshire, and Hamden, and four towns, Westfield, Southwick, Granby, and Simsbury. The house never moved. The jurisdiction moved. And you remember the strategic importance of the Congamon Lakes? Well, it's now the eastern border between Southwick, Massachusetts, and Suffield, Connecticut. Usually the boundary is in the middle, like the Merrimack River is between this town and that town. Not here. Every single drop of water, except a little teeny Connecticut cove, is controlled by Massachusetts. Connecticut has no jurisdiction even over its beaches on the other side of the lake. It's all Massachusetts. Now that actually brings up an interesting point that I heard, which was that if you live then on the East Bank, 
of the Congamond Lake in Connecticut that and you want to have a boat my understanding is is that uh, you would pay the personal property tax on the boat to Connecticut but you would need to get a permit to drive it on the lake from Massachusetts do I have that right I don't know the answer to that which just goes to show how complex the legal complications are surrounding this tiny piece of Massachusetts that juts down into Connecticut and that's not all for example, over the centuries, homes were built right along the border. There are several buildings or homes that are on the border between Connecticut and Mass. And the garage is in one state and the house is in the other state. Which means, among other things, of course, a very complicated series of bills between taxing jurisdictions. Now, many of the residents who wanted to join Connecticut over the decades based that decision on lower tax rates in Connecticut, you may have heard over the years that Massachusetts had labored under the pejorative label of Taxachusetts. But more recently, Pat says property taxes have risen considerably in Connecticut and kind of balanced out with Massachusetts, and income tax rates are comparable. So she doubts that any of the roughly one to 2,000 residents of Southwick would want to leave the Bay State at this point in time. Now, taxes are one thing, but what about religion and daily affairs? I go to church in Connecticut over the border in Granby. And I find that they know all the things that are going on in Connecticut. And they don't have any type of sharing of things that are going on in Southwick. I mean, we're two different states and two different towns, and there isn't any interchange. In fact, at one point, Pat says there was an effort to kind of journalistically bridge the towns all together. We used to have a, a newspaper that covered Duffield, Southwick, and Westfield, and Granby, but it failed. It's no longer in existence. It's almost like it's two different countries. And as far as some officials are concerned, it truly is a very clear line of delineation, especially for the fire department. Pat tells the famous local story about a 911 call regarding a fire at a resident's property. The garage was in Connecticut, but they live in Massachusetts. The house is in Massachusetts. So they called the Massachusetts Fire Department. They looked and saw that the barn was in Connecticut and they couldn't do anything about it. So they let the thing burn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but it's not funny. They were that sticky about uh, jurisdiction. She also tells a story of perhaps one of the most unforeseen problems that happened to befall a member of Pat's Southwick Historical Society during this member's childhood. One of our members went to school right on the boundary in the elementary school. And the outhouse at that time was in Massachusetts. So if they wanted to go to the bathroom, they had to say, Teacher, may I go to Massachusetts? You can just imagine the follow-up comments that that prompted. Well, most of the population and land use in the jog is residential, but there are some businesses that cater to Congamon Lakes boating activity. There are also a few retail stores and a grocery store. But until recently, the tax differential on gasoline was the thing that drew a lot of Connecticut motorists across the border to one of the two gas stations in the jog. It used to be that everybody and his uncle came to the gas station across from Big Y because it was so much cheaper than going in, uh, you know, doing it in Granby. Connecticut, though, has suspended its gasoline tax at least through the end of 2022 to try to help inflation-strained family budgets. So the differential has disappeared and... So is a lot of the Connecticut traffic in the jog. 
Well, this century-and-a-half saga to settle the border taught us one thing at least. Just when you think it's over, somebody else reopens the case. Now, this did go on for 159 years. In your mind, is this settled, or is there a possibility that some future governor of Connecticut might wake up someday and say, hey, we want the, the line to be the way it was? <laughs> I don't know. I think they got enough with Suffield and all the other towns that were originally north of the mistaken line. So they probably didn't fuss too much. We had a speaker one year. His topic was take back the jog. So clearly there is still some sentiment out there in favor of reviewing this matter, at least at some level. Well, this fascinating story of the Southwick jog has been the subject of two books, newspaper and magazine articles, and even a video documentary. It's of enduring interest to people. People want to know, well, what the heck happened? You know, why is it straight and then all of a sudden that little hooky thing comes down into Connecticut? I wear my T-shirt that has the duration of each uh, jurisdiction with a map, you know, that shows the jog. And uh, we were at a rest area on our way to Maine one, one year, and a fellow saw my T-shirt, you know, and he said, I've always wondered about that. I read somewhere that in Massachusetts they say, thank goodness, because this way the, uh, the otherwise straight southern border doesn't let Massachusetts slide off into the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> I've heard that, too. wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. My thanks to Patricia Pat Odiorn, a keeper of the delicate history behind the Southwick jog. And it's now on my bucket list to make a sojourn up to the area and buy a sandwich to go at the Big Y supermarket, fill up my car with gas no matter what the gas tax price might be, pay homage to the Moore House that's been in so many jurisdictions, and look for one of those t-shirts with the jurisdictional history that Pat wears. And, oh yes, dip my toe into Congamon Lakes. If you like this show, make sure you follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and that way you'll be notified when the next episode is ready. And share the link to the podcast with your friends, colleagues, and family. Also, I do presentations on topics that I discuss here on Amazing Tales. If you would like me to discuss an appearance at your group with you, just drop me a line at amazingtalesct at gmail.com. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy.